Humankind has for millennia sought comfort and guidance in rituals. Could some of these traditions have been brought to us by extraterrestrial visitors? Join me on a journey through time and space where we will find out the truth about these claims. And as it turns out, it's rarely aliens. Welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine the TV show Ancient Aliens. Through the claims hold water to an archaeologist or other better explanations out there. I'm your host Frederick and this is episode 28. And since it's almost Christmas, it might be nice to look into different rituals and how they might be evidence of alien visitation. We will start in Mesoamerica and investigate human sacrifices, then go to UK and the Stone of Destiny. Is the tradition of a monarchy and its regalia really an invention by aliens? We also learn about the Bep Kororoti and how Egyptian and Viking ships try to emulate spaceships. Mm-hmm, stay tuned. But before we get too far into the episode, I want to highlight something listener Stella sent in. In our previous episode, I said that uh, Orion's belt would be foreign and unimportant in Mayan society. Well, it turns out that I was wrong. The name was, of course, not used. But in some crazy myth, the belt was actually important. This is due to the Mayan hearth they had in their houses. It was made out of three stones. So it was believed that the god's home would also have three stones. We will get more into uh, the creation story in this episode and see more versions of this creation myth. And the episode show notes have been updated to reflect that. And a huge thank you to Stella. And remember that you find sources, resources, and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you will also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you like the podcast, I would appreciate if you left one of those five-star reviews that I heard so much about. Now that we've finished our preparations, let's dig into the episode. Hey, this is Dinah from the 2AM Brains podcast. Have you ever wondered if science has created a spider goat? Or if Bigfoot is telepathic? Join us every week on 2AM Brains to find out the answers to these questions and so much more. We start again with a trip to the Mayans, maybe to show the Mayan idea of cyclical time, maybe. The show will focus on two things in this part, human sacrifice and El Castillo, or Kukul Clan, at Chichen Itza in Yucatan. The reasons, I believe, are more due to these two things being more known and drawing the viewers in a sense that way. And most of us react with some sort of horror fascination when we hear the word human sacrifice. And the show do really make use of this. But really, there's no great reason for the show to bring up this phenomenon. The connection to aliens is quite vague and feels more as an afterthought. William Bramley describes the sacrifices as... They would bring human victims 
up the stairs of their temples, they would cut out their beating hearts, and that would be the form of sacrifice the Mayans engaged in. Now it's a gruesome act and they are describing here and the one I'm sure you're quite familiar with. We'll look into the Mayan religion here and the human sacrifice a little bit. As you might suspect, the show claims that the gods worshipped among the Mayans were not in fact gods. They were, of course, alien, coming to Earth, giving Mayan the idea of civilization. Now let's look into a bit of the religion and its spiritual belief and then compare that to what we learn from what the show claims. First, we should acknowledge that the Mayan religion and spirituality were severely traumatized by the Spanish conquest. What we know today is basically a reconstruction of bits and pieces that, that managed to survive the destruction and attempts at annihilation by the European and Catholic Church. Moving on, we see a couple of things that might seem strange to us. For once, all living things have something called ka, an invisible sacred quality. The gods could have either animalistic or humanoid looks, but at the same time they would have the actual form that you could see, such as sun, moon, Venus, or even rain. But they could also take an auditory form, such as thunder. So we have this uh, idea of the invisible companion. They were not only for us mere mortals. No, they also were spirit companions to the gods. So yeah, even gods had one assigned to them. So for example, we can look at God G or Kinich Ahau. Why did I call this God G? Well, as we briefly discussed in the last episode, the Mayan hieroglyph, were decoded relatively late, so when scholars tried to examine the early codices, they had, well, the scholars had a little problem. They could not read the text, but from the context, they could see that gods were represented in the document. So Paul Shellas set up a system where each representation got a letter, got a letter between A to P, which has since, well, stuck in the literature. So Kinash Ahau is a god well-rooted in the classical era and is the sun god. And Kinash Ahau could be represented as a man, a jaguar, or a deer. But at the same time, he would be the literal sun, while also having this spiritual companion like everybody else. So there's a bit of duality going on here. He was both a man and the sun at the same time. Now, looking at Mayan society, you will learn that they found comfort in order. And they found this especially in the sky through astronomy. And the stars move in a way that you can expect where they will be at a given time if you just look long enough. And the Mayan called the stars and planets sky wanderers due to their movements. Note that these bodies were astronomical concept and literal embodiments of the gods. But to the Mayan people, the sky wanderers would not come to Earth. That would not really make sense. These beings had a life each day they were born. They lived throughout the night or day and um, then died as their heavenly body set each morning or night. So we see this cyclical idea here and we will see it come again and again when we look into the Mayan traditional spirit and, well, faith, basically. And we see that the kings, or Ajas, worked as a sort of high priest in the society. Now, they were not god kings, 
but they were the highest ranking person in the religion of the state. Let's look into the creation story that we only brushed upon in earlier episodes. I must warn you though that it's not just one creation story in the Mayan religion. There are several, they all contain similar elements though. The common characteristics is that humans were not born into the first world. Remember that Mayan calendar starts at the beginning of the 13th Bactun. And in most stories we have three worlds before the final one. The people in the northern Yucatan believe that the first world was inhabited by dwarfs. But all these first attempts had flaws and the gods start over just as they will do with our well world at one point or another. Most of the destruction are by floods. There are other versions too but most common are floods. But in contrast to the Bible there were no survivors or boats. And since there are so many versions, I've decided to use the most common telling that we find in Popol Vuh. So in the aftermath of the last destruction, the earth is left in a quite ill-defined mess. A figure called Wukube Kwakix, a giant bird, is going around and claiming to be lord of both the sun and the moon. But the hero twins kills Wakab with a blowgun, and with the birth death, the sun and the moon can rule their rightful domains. But where did the hero twins come from? Well, <laughs> to answer this, we have to talk about uh, the demise of the mice god Hun, uh, Hunapau and his brother Wukub Hunapau. These two were terrific ball players who unfortunately lost a ball game in Shibalba, the underworld, to the gods of death. The name of my deathcore metal band, by the way, uh, is not, but uh, it should be at least. The brother was uh, buried under the Shibalba ball court while Han Hunapau's severed head was uh, hanged in a calabash tree. The Hunapau somehow spits in the hand of the daughter to the death god. That way, he managed to impregnate her. <laughs> this causes her to flee to the surface where her mother protects her and she births the hero twins. Now, they were taken care by the grandmother and someday after they kill this monster, Wukube Kwakix, they find their father's ball game equipment stored, I know, in the attic maybe. The twins are outstanding players and get, and get invited to Shibalba to play the gods of death. But it turns out that the gods of death don't like to lose and they're very sore losers. So they will try to kill the twins through different trials throughout the nights. Luckily the animals are on the hero twins side and uh, warns them about this. In the end the death gods would not let them go. To escape, the hero twins sacrificed themselves. The gods of death burned and milled their bones and spread the ashes in a river. But from the river, the twins was reborn and returned back to Shibalba. This time for vengeance. Instead of playing a ball game with the gods that obviously they cheated in, <laughs> they showed neat new trick that they had learned. One of the twins beheaded the other and then resurrected its dead sibling. And the gods of death found this trick so amusing and fantastic that they demanded the hero twins would perform the trick on them. They did, of course, oblige and beheaded the gods, but um, they did not resurrect them. Instead, the twins was transformed into the sun and Venus, forever fated to relive their birth, escape and death for eternity. 
And this is just one version, as I mentioned. There are other out there in some. The hero twins are not turned into celestial bodies. Instead, the mice god rises through a spring in the ball court. In other, the god Shaq resurrected the mice god by breaking into Shibalba's as some sort of orifice. And the mice god becomes the tree of life, starting the new creation. Now, we have mentioned ancestral worship in the past, and the dead was a big part of Mayan society. And something I find refreshing is that there's actually no idea of hell. Everyone goes to this place of abundance called Flower Mountain. And the Spanish write strongly that even people who committed suicide, that died in childbirth, war, or whatever, went there. But there are two layers of afterlife, the normal and being a god. The Mayan kings were not gods on earth like the Egyptian pharaoh, but upon their death, they would become gods. That's why blood sacrifice is essential. The king isn't just talking to his ancestors, he is talking with the gods through his ancestors. And we even have examples of queens doing the bloodletting, since they might have a particular ancestor within their bloodline. So looking at all that we learned in the past episode and today we realize that you have to really shoehorn aliens into the Mayans mythology. Looking at their belief there's not much room for aliens but what we see instead is the idea of sacrifice and repetition. Everything was bound to happen again. Time was not a line it was a cycle. What happened in the past shall occur in the future and the most important sacrifice was the king's blood. His bloodletting rituals ensure the cycle would continue. But if you wanted to sacrifice someone, the Mayans prefer a king to kill. They would often behead as a representation of the mice god, as we saw earlier. But ordinary people would be sacrificed too. Their blood was some sort of snack food for the gods, but uh, more important, it was a celebration of the son's rebirth and life. Some early accounts from the Spaniards claimed that the Aztecs or other Maya-speaking culture introduced human sacrifice to Mayans. But looking at Mayan art, it seems to be a later construction from the Yucatan Mayan, if of course these accounts are even true. Now, the show's thesis is that they performed this sacrifice to get their alien gods to come back, but, um, well, something else is needed to fit in with the Mayans. The human sacrifice were to make sure the gods gave them favors. We, we, we see an increase of the sacrifices at, towards the end of the Mayan civilization before Spain started to force their culture upon them. Now, we have spent roughly 10 minutes or so is trying to explain briefly Mayan religion. And the show spent maybe two minutes on this. So this is good to highlight. It's easy to make up things without evidence. But it takes quite a lot of time trying to explain why it's wrong. And this is not a comprehensive guide to Mayan religion or practice. But I hope you, my dear listener, are inspired now to go and learn more about this. The show notes will provide some excellent resources if you want to learn more about this topic, and I'm sure we will return to it for deep dives later on. But let's move on and look where the sacrifices took place. El Castillo, or as it was called by the Mayans, Kukulkan, as the name indicates, it was a temple dedicated to the deity of Kukulkan or Quetzalcoatl, as the feathered Serpent was also known in Mexico, 
and the show's main focus here is a particular shadow that appear on this pyramid on the equinoxes. Uh, I'll let Van Däniken explain this to us. This is a model of the pyramid of Chichen Itza in Mexico. And every year on March 21st, when the sun goes up, directly on the stairway here is created triangles of light and shadow coming down the stairs, which represents God Kukulkan has descended to the humans. At the end, you see the face of God Kukulkan. On uh, September 21st, it's the opposite. This time, when the sun rises up in the morning, God Kukulkan goes up the stairs and ends in a bright light up on the little temple, which means God Kukulkan visited the earthlings, teach them, and after a certain period, he disappeared again into the sky with the promise to return one day. So the idea presented is that since the shadow descends and ascends, this must indicate that aliens visited us. <laughs> we are back to claim if something goes up or down, it must be a civilization explaining an encounter of the third kind. But does this really happen as presented? Well, the shadow exists, but it only goes one way, really. And we're still determined if this was really intended or just a happy coincidence. What was more important to the Mayans is that the stairs adds up to the solar year. We also see 52 Elko, probably referring back to the hub calendar that we talked about a bit in the last episode, that consists of 52 years. We also have C notes going out in all four weather directions. And a C note is a pit or sinkhole that may occur after collapse of limestone, revealing the underground beneath. And if you picture a large well, well, you're quite close enough to what a C note looks like. Its importance for water supplies is, so, is a given, basically. They were also vital for sacrificial reasons, especially for the Itzamayan in the Yucatan Peninsula. People were sacrifices into the Seenots to the rain god Shak. Of course, not all Seenots was used for sacrifice, for <laughs> obvious reason, but two of the four uh, we have in Chichen Itza have evidence of the practice. Unfortunately, we know little about the pre-Hispanic version of Kukulkan, but the Itza idea of the feather serpent spread through the Mayan culture and was in the end picked up by the Aztec. What's interesting about this is it's a dualistic god. It has feathers and flies and still also serpentines like a snake on its belly down on earth. Now, I think it's crucial to at least bring up here that Quetzalcoatl is, by some of these alternative history proponents, believed to be evidence of white people in the Americas pre-Columbus. In a previous episode, we covered a short-lived colony of Vikings in northern Canada, but this claiming is different. We have encountered the idea of white people or gods in America in earlier episode, so let's look a bit deeper about the claim about Quetzalcoatl or Kukulkan. They don't bring up this in the episode, but, well, I thought that this might be a good place to discuss this. Now, the idea is not new, and <laughs> not, not at all. The white god theory comes in many forms and uh, from a few different places. 
we have to us now famous authors like David Childress, who bring up this idea in his books Lost Cities of North and Central America and The Lost Cities of Atlantis. We see this claim in Graham Hancock's Fingerprints of the Gods more than once, but also the Mormons support this idea in their scriptures that you know white Israelites came to America. But let's wind back and see if we can find the earliest mention of the origin of this claim. And if we do this, we will end up with uh, Geronimo de Mendieta, a Franciscan missionary and chronicle who lived between 1525 and 1604. In his work Historia Ecclesiastica, Indiana, Volume 2, Chapter 10, we learned uh, about the um, about the history of Quetzalcoatl, the Mendieta probably based his writing on the now lost writings of uh, Andres de Olmos, another priest operating a bit earlier than the Mendieta. But in this chapter, we learn that Quetzalcoatl was described as follow: He was a white man, tall in body, broad forehead, large eye, long black hair, and large round beard. This is the earliest description of Quetzalcoatl as a white person. And this description does not exist in any pre-Hispanic source. And if you, my listener, have an earlier source, please send it in. But I've looked. I've not found any. It's not only me who struggles to find an earlier source. And we would all be happy to be proven wrong. You know, to be a bit different from um, people who shall not be named. The writing of them and Dieta inspire similar depiction you know, of uh, Veracoja in Peru. As with these claims, they tend to spread and be reworked and just like a long game of telephone. So the idea is around and it's festering, but it's not until the America congressman Ignatius Donnelly we see a connection between white gods and Atlantis. Now, Donnelly is, of course, a politician, Shakespeare denier, and Atlantis believer. Building on these ideas of, again, Blavatsky and Steiner, he argued that the Atlanteans were a population of white people who went around and thought people how to be a civilization. If you read his book Atlantis, the antediluvian world, you will quickly learn how his idea of an advanced Neolithic society is eerily similar to Hancock's idea about a lost civilization. Now, in his book, Donnelly, based on the work of Desiree Charnay, claimed that the Toltecs were white. On page 349, it's stated that Quetzalcoatl is white and both the Toltecs and Quetzalcoatl originate from Atlantis. I've also heard these strange claims that since people of Mesoamerica can't grow beards, it must have been Europeans they talked about. Again, taking Demendita's history and adding just an extra layer of races on top of it. Note that neither Childress Hancock nor other alternative alternative history promoter really deal with the racist origin of their claims. They just hope that you won't go and look this up and just be frightened on how... (laughs) obscenely racist uh, description <laughs> really are. That's why I don't really quote it here, because I don't really want to. But again, I gave you what page to go. If you want to look it up, it's freely available online. And yeah, you will find it in the show notes. Now, I think we will return to White God's theory because they play quite a role in this universe. We didn't really get into the Mormon angle as we learned back in episode 22, the LDS has a weird, weird history. 
But for now, we will leave this part of the world, and after the break, we will look into some rituals that the alien proponents claim to be evidence of visitation. Let's return to the proof for ancient astronauts. The show will now bring up two ceremonies that, as evidence, are pretty weak. The first are festivities of Beltane, a Celtic celebration celebrated in the spring by lighting fires. This festival comes down to us through Gaelic dictionaries such as Sanas Cormiac. The earliest reference to this is during 900 BCE. The alien proponents claim that the celebration was an attempt to recreate the lights from UFOs that the Celts have seen. And it's also claimed that it was believed that portals opened up during this time. Now, the Celts, Scandinavians, and people in the Baltic area in general indeed celebrated the start of spring with lightning fires. But it was not to recreate UFO lights, but to scare away spirits. Even the fires in the homestead were extinguished and relit. The entry of spring was a celebration of life and rebirth in a sense. And the UFO angle seems quite silly here, or, well, maybe even more than usual. Now, the second celebration originates in Brazil. The show starts to talk about a tribe called Cayapo, and the ceremony performed within this tribe. And we see a figure dressed in an oversight costume that seems to be woven. And this figure is supposed to be called Bep Cororoti. Now, and the show claims that this person is trying to resemble an astronaut and the tribe is celebrating an extraterrestrial visitation. The show does something in this segment that if you have followed along and watched this episode, you might have noticed we have Giorgio on screen telling us something that originally von Daniken has claimed. And this particular case is from Daniken's 1973 book, Gold of the Gods. Now, the Kayapo tribes refer to themselves as Mebengokre, meaning the men from the waterhole. The name Kayapo originates during the 1800s and was coined by other groups in the area. And this name translates to roughly those who look like monkey. This is probably not referring to the physical look, but the, that the people used masks in a particular ritual. The Mebengokre lives in central Brazil, in an area large as Austria, and is mainly covered with rainforests. Now, they have unfortunately struggled for a long time to be able to try to keep their land since, well, other settlements are closing in. Several NGOs trying to help the tribe to acquire the rights to the land. And if you wish to help, you can visit the Kayapo project. So the Mebengokre are a real tribe. So far, so good, I guess. Even if we have, I have some opinions on using their name. Even if I have some opinions on using a name that people don't, don't really prefer. But how is it with Bep Cororotti that the show keeps talking about? Well, here it gets murky. Von Daniken claim in Gold of the Gods that Yao Americo Perret visited the tribe in 1952 and learned the story about this spaceman. We get the story about how the Mebengokri meets this strange man in a suit who they can't hurt with their weapons and the figure find it quite amusing and then demonstrates a powerful stick-like weapon that pulverizes both stones and trees and Von Danik makes quite a deal about the, that this story was before Yuri Gargarin's trip to space in 1961. So how would they even know how a spacesuit looked like? 
Well, since uh, von Däniken did not give a reference, it was quite tricky to find Peret's own account of this. It's not presented in the text or in the small reference list in the back of Anakin's book. I did not have any luck in the books written by Peretz available and was close to giving up when I had some, well, stroke of luck. Now, Yao Americo Peret tells this story in an article for the weekly Brazilian magazine O Cruciero in the issue published on the 29th of March 1972. In the article, Pep Corotti or Guriemo do Espacho, Pep Cororotti, Space Warrior. Perret talks about this conversation taking place in 1962. Now, Pep Cororotti is known from the anthropological records. For example, Claude Levi Strauss discussed this figure in his book, The Raw and the Cook, in 1969. In it, we learn that Pep Cororotti was a powerful shaman who, after getting a tapir, was left with only two paws by his greedy, greedy friends. Now, he decided to take revenge, so he shaves his head and climbs up a hill and starts to control lightning with his wand. And an interesting tidbit that explains this suit is that the Mebengokre are skilled beekeepers. They have colonized and used different species of bee, and some even stingerless. Now, Bep Kororoti among the Mebengokre is usually associated with rain and thunder, but due to his mortal beginning, he is particularly fond of honey. Ethnobiologist Daryl Posey talks about how the Mebengokre leaves honey in wild nests they open, and this is so the bees will return later and create more honey. But traditional people of the tribe have done this, so Bep Kororoti will get his share. So, the suit is to keep bees and not to get stung. Jason Colavito landed on the same conclusion in his exploration of the subject. And so we see some similarities between Yao Americo, Peretz telling, and other anthropological collections. But I'm not sure why Peretz telling differs so much from the other anthropological work. He might have accidentally influenced the group, or the myth has evolved, but I can't find any instance of this story after or before Perret. Now, it does not mean it's not true, but it means that we should keep it with some skepticism. The next part is giving me quite some David Icke vibes. No, no, we will not discuss the shape-shifting Jewish reptilians here today. That would be silly. Now, the show proposed that the kings are traditions either instituted by aliens or kings trying to emulate aliens. This is a bit unclear, to be honest. But we start with the Stone of Scone, or as the show put it, the Stone of Destiny. This name is not wrong, but make it sound fancier than it is. This stone is a stone on which the king or queen sits during the coronation ceremony. Or nowadays, it's beneath a bench on which the monarch sits. For some reason, the show claims that the stone is from outer space, but since it's made out of old red sandstone, quarried close to the Scottish village Scone. Now, this village, other than being named after a tasty bread, was the coronation place for the Scottish royalty once upon a time. 
And we descend into a section of loose threads that they're trying to tie together. But the main argument is that the kings are viewed as God. And in some cultures, that is true. That's one reason. For example, Alexander the Great conquered Egypt. It was one place he could be a literal god on earth. But while religion and monarchy had close ties, most cultures have a different approach to how the king is viewed. In the Mayan world, the king was a high priest, as we've seen, and while in Rome, some emperors was deified upon their death. And if you look at Catholic Europe, the kings were ordained or chosen by God, but they didn't speak for God, nor was a representative of God. The idea that a king, emperor, chieftain, ajar, any other name for the role, well, what they did var- varies widely between societies. Luckily, they have hidden some clues within the coronation. Again, we have a Eurocentric approach, but okay, let's see what it is. Uh, it's part of the regalia of the monarch, the scepter. You know how the rod looks like an ankh, the Egyptian symbol? Yeah, neither did I. But this is the claim they make with a little fact from Jason Martel. The ankh is always a symbol used in pharaonic times as a scepter. But an interesting play on the word ankh shows that it also stems from the word Anunnaki which meant those who from heaven came to earth. What Jason does here is to smash two words together without really understanding them. The Ankh is an Egyptian symbol representing three sounds that firm form this world. And in no form or even the sound, it's related to Anunnaki. That's just paradolia of four words, basically. If you translate it, Ankh would mean key of life. Even the translation of the Anunnaki that Martell gives is wrong. And we have covered it so many times now. It's something that Zachariah Sitchin invented and now for those in the back, Anunnaki would be translated to something like of princely seed. While the Ankh has its place in Egyptian depictions of the pharaoh, it was never used as a scepter. In fact, the Egyptian pharaoh already had a scepter, which we have drawings dating back to even pre-dynastic times. Add to this the stars we have found from the first dynasty, not one, but several, both in Abydos and Saqqara. And the finest scepter is of the pharaoh Kashmikevi, found by Petru in 1901. And I recommend you to go and look it up. The Ankh scepter connection might not be the evidence that would blow this thing open, but um, maybe we should start using our heads. So if the stick don't work, you got to use your head. Jason Martell returns with another Anunnaki claim that they have glowed around them. From the light, we're supposed to think about halos, and the Anunnaki angel connection is again repeated here. We start to think about, you know, what you could put on your head might represent an alien helmet, I guess. We don't really get into this claim too hard, for it's just, it's silly. Come on. <laughs> People always have needed to different themselves from others. This becomes even more visible when we look at monarchs. The best way to stand out is to have visible headgear. Usually these segments have some anger to make them sound plausible, but I'm not sure what happened with this one. It's just a collection of silly claims. But I don't know about you, but I think we could use a break here. When we return, we will investigate how much energy prayer generates and... A Egyptian boat mystery. So 
this last section has some more fun things to bring us. This segment is going to be a little bit all over the place. We start first with the Olmecs, the mother culture of Mesoamerica. They are most known for their giant stone heads that we have found about 17 of, or about exactly 17 of. These are large affair with full lips and sporting something that looks like a helmet. This has resulted in some quite uh, interesting alternative theories of the Olmec origin. Even back in 1850, when the first stone was uncovered in Veracruz, the ideas of Africans sailing over to Mesoamerica and starting the Olmec culture started to appear. And this culminated in the 1980 with the story The Olmec Football Player by Kathleen Smith, in which an Afro-American football player traveled back in time or culminated and culminated. I, I might not be so sure about that. These ideas tend to appear every so often, basically. But what will the show claims about this colossal head? Well, not much. They use the heads to talk about something else. I let Feibag take the wheel. The mother culture of Central America was the Olmecs. In old images made by the Olmecs, we can see helmeted beings dressed in overalls ascending. They have wings, and they have microphones almost in front of their mouths. Are these the heads of rulers or priests? Or were they maybe aliens that they wanted to portray? Now, it's unclear what images Feibag refers to here, but I don't really recognize them. I have not found this example going online, searching. A more common motif that's really well known in the Olmec tradition would be shamans transforming into jaguars. This transformation is sometimes depicted even in small children. So maybe there, the shamanism was um, trait you were born with. I'm not sure about that. But we, we see concepts that will be important in Mayan cultures, such as twins and dwarves. And Feibag is correct in the statement that the Olmec can be viewed as the mother culture of Mesoamerica, but his correctness basically starts and ends there. From the giant heads, we get into the concept of shamans. And here we will go into a segment dominated by Nancy Redstar, Clifford Mahoti, and Standing Elk. People you have met before if you've been following the show. I'm not going to get into what they say here because, well, myth evolve and expand. I mean, Christianity has more than 45,000 domination. That's only the ones big enough that we actually start to count them. So I'm not going to tend to know more about Native American religion and just have the approach to leave it as it is in this one. They bring up ideas that I think reflect their belief because we will get into something more interesting. It's time for what you might have been waiting for since the last break. How much energy does a prayer produce? So to get to this question, we need to follow the Olmec Shaman to through the Native American religions through the Horseshoe Valley. And it's quite a trip, and we are finally led to believe that um, Dr. Bogoslav Lipinski has proven that prayer is, for one, real, and has an energy output. Now, Dr. Lipinski got his degree in biochemistry at the Universitet Warszawski and seems to do 
decent work in cancer research. So his field is not at all related to his claim that seems to have been only published in an article back in 2009 for a website called Medjorgia USA. And the report was named Scientific Study. In it, Lipinski claims to have measured prayer output with an electroscope in a city called Medjugorje in today's Bosnia-Herzegovina. This experiment took place in 1985 with a rechargeable electroscope, model BT-400 Biotech-Electronics from Canada. Ancient aliens and Lipinski refer to the country as Yugoslavia for reasons probably only known to them. This show was well was made well after the war down there and Yugoslavia had not existed for some time in 2010. But you might ask yourself, what is an electroscope? I wonder that too. And the short answer is that, well, it's a crude voltmeter. The electroscope was invented in the 1600s by William Gilbert. And to be honest, it's mostly stayed the same since. I don't know if this is the two Lipinski refers to, but since I don't have anything else to go on, we have to assume that he, you know, refers to the proper device. I could not find any old article about an uh, electroscope with model BT400 or the biotech electronics company in Canada. If you can, send it in to me and we can update it later. Lipinski claimed that he managed to measure a high electric charge and radiation when people prayed within a room. But from what I can tell, neither Lipinski nor anyone else has been able to replicate this. And the method makes little sense as the charge must be quite close to the electroscope for it to register an output. The electroscope can detect the ionizing radiation or an electronic charge on a body. But of course, within limits here. It's a very common, you know, physics project for high schoolers. And luckily, you can build your own electroscope in your home and start trying to replicate this study. In all seriousness, reading the study, you will start to note that it suffers the same issue that many ghost hunters face. They don't know how to use the tool and interpret the data in a way that favors their preconceived notion. You know, just like running around with an EMF meter in a building and then going, wow, look at this electricity and not... You know, figure it might be the wires in the wall or that's just me being, you know, mean, <laughs> crude skeptic. But the study is really bad. But as I said, you can replicate this. You can try the same. You can collect all your friends in a prayer, put the electroscope in the room. Does it go off? Well, then it's right. If it does not, well, he probably is wrong. Now let's move on to the stars. And we're brought all the way back to Egypt for this last section of the show where we will explore the meaning of vessels and um, journey to the stars. We open up on a thrilling discovery in 1952 of Khufu's funerary boat, and it's 45 meters or 150 feet, I got you Americans, large vessel made out of uh, cedars from Lebanon. The ship is strange for reasons other than aliens, it has no place for a mast, and the oars are really too small to be functional for the for the boat of these sites. The leading theory today is that it was a funeral vessel made to bring the dead pharaoh from the east to the land of the dead in the west. And it was indeed not your daily sailing type of vessel. Philip Coppens explained this boat like this. 
In the case of King Khufu, we find that there is a literal boat, said to be a boat of a million years. Even though this might appear to be a normal ship, it is actually something far more, and it almost represents the spaceship, because they didn't just speak about years, they spoke millions of years. And this is precisely what space travel is all about. Somehow, the dead body was able to go on this voyage. Now, the idea of traveling to the land of the dead through a boat comes from Ra's daily expedition across the sky and predestined return to the underworld. Yes, the Egyptians believed that you travel, traveled west and then down. Now, not up to heaven. This is something the alien crowd invented by themselves. So if you're rich, you could have a large boat, for example. If you're middle class, you might have a smaller, you know, more modest uh, model. And if your means were very tight, the coffin would actually suffice you. But you need to put the right spells in there. Otherwise, just fine. Also means that you can stop someone to go to the duat. For example, you could, you know, not bring them a boat. Then they would be stuck. So you could punish the dead in that sense. Now we also have a short appearance here by Robert Bawal, who claims the word for God in ancient Egypt is Neter, Netero, and that it translates to a being that came from the cosmos. Where he got this idea is highly unclear. The glyph representing this word looks like a flag on a pole, or maybe an axe, and its, its meaning is a bit murky, but the most accepted translation is strength or power. This can, of course, change. It's still being pondered on, but Beauvoir's translation does not fit in any sense or way. And he offers no explanation on how he got to it. I mean, it looks like a flag or an axe. How do he get a cosmos from it? No idea. But we continue this idea of a boat, meaning spaceship, to my dismay, by going north to my home, to my stone ships. Oh, for the love of Thor, yes, they will now claim that the stone ships, ship setting in Sweden or web setting is evidence of extraterrestrial visitation. We will hear that these stone formations are grey. While this is true to some extent, it's not the whole truth, of course. The show also claimed that these are from the Viking area, and some are, but not all. The stone ships sometimes have burial within them, or are located within a grey field, but most commonly they were close to the old coastline. And the theory is, while being part of the funeral rite, it was also points of navigations. Remember that in Scandinavia we don't have sea rites, we have land rites instead. The old stone ship dates to the oldest stone ship dates back to Scandinavian Bronze Age. And the tradition of portraying ships stems from there too. So in Scandinavian petroglyphs, one of the most common depictions is ships, which seems to have been crucial for the people of the time, either due to trade or other reasons, but they like to depict boats. We also find different types of ship burials. There were rarely cremation-type burials and are pretty famous due to their rich grave goods. The most famous example might be the Osberga ship from Norway. And this ship is more or less intact and was buried with what we assume it was a royal individual with a quite impressive grave goods. At first, only half of the vessel was covered by a tumulus, leaving one side open. And there is this idea that the open part was used as a stage, that the Viking burial was part of a larger concept and a longer ritual 
especially for this king. Now, ship burials were not only for men. We have examples of women being buried this way too. Take, for example, grave 36 in Birka, Stockholm, where from the skeletal remain, it seems to have been a woman, also with rich grave goods. These should not be confused with the woman's warrior grave that upset some strange people recently. Now, are these graves and boats evidence of aliens? Well, I, I doubt it. The evolution and connection to the culture of Scandinavia would not make sense if they tried to emulate alien spaceships. Also, why did they try to emulate accurate ships in Egypt and Sweden when they didn't have to sail them? I mean, wouldn't they try to build it like the vessels that they saw in the skies, like the spaceships? You know, maybe shape it like a saucer? I don't know, neither does the show, and it's where we end. So it seems as this episode was a bust again, unfortunately. It was not really the strongest episode that they've put together so far, but maybe I have better luck next time when we will examine aliens and ancient engineers. If you're waiting for me to tackle Graham Hancock's latest series, Ancient Apocalypse, don't worry, there's something in the pipeline but so many excellent archaeologists, historians, and others has done such an amazing job with this show already that I want to do something a bit more special to make it a bit extra interesting for all of you. Now, till then, remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify, or to your friend in the trench. And I recommend visiting diggingupancientaliens.com to find more info about me and the podcast. And we have t-shirts. Don't forget that. And you can also find me on most social media sites. And if you have comments, corrections, and suggestions, or just want to write an email in all caps, you can find my contact info on the website. There you also find all the sources and resources used to create this podcast. And you also find further reading suggestions if you want to learn more about the subjects we bring up. Sandra Martelor created the intro music, and our outro music is by the band called Transcrove, who sings their song Tinfoil Head. Links to both of these artists will be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. 